Well, a couple of weeks ago here in America, we had the State of the Union Address. Does anybody watch this uh, speech that our president gives? Does anybody pay attention to this? <laughs> okay, there we are. This is a long-held tradition. It used to just be a paper the president would write, but then with TV and radio, he started to give the speech in front of a joint session of Congress, and it comes from the Article 2, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution. He shall, from time to time, give to Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Once a year, we get to hear from the president what he thinks is necessary and expedient about what is happening here in our country of America. And he had many things to say if you read the speech or if you sat through it and all the times that they would stop and give applause. He gave much uh, talk about our economy. He gave much talk about our foreign affairs. And he said this, and this is a direct quote. He said, and no challenge... No challenge poses a greater threat to future generations than climate change. <laughs> now, if you're hoping that for some political commentary, that's not what we do here at church, all right? If we're going to say anything about our president here at church, what we should say is that it is our responsibility as Christians to respect our governing authorities, to pray for them, and to obey the laws of the land. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? That's all we say here at church about the government as we do what the government tells us to do, unless it contradicts what God tells us to do, we are ready to be good citizens of these United States of America. But a couple of weeks ago, we had our own kind of state of the union. We had a state of the church. And we said what our mission was to hear as God's people at this church, and we said that there's no greater challenge, no challenge poses a greater threat to future generations than the need right now for more disciples of Jesus Christ in our city, in our nation, and in this world. And it is our mission, should we choose to accept it, it is our mission to make disciples in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we're here to do. That's what we think is the great need of the hour. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that America as a nation is in a dark place and we need a great light to shine. We need a revival of Jesus Christ in our nation once again. And I want to encourage you to start to pray for such a thing if you have not been already. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is an important passage in the history of the nation of Israel. This is on page 364. If you got one of our Bibles here this morning, page 364. And this is a very historic time in the nation of Israel because they have just built the temple. King Solomon has overseen the building of the temple. And now they are going to consecrate this temple. They are going to commit it to a holy God and offer so many sacrifices and have a special ceremony which the whole nation will gather together for the worship and glory of God. And Solomon, he gives a speech. And he says, God, we've set up this temple for us to have a relationship with you through the priests and the sacrifices that will take place here. And God, if people ever look towards this temple and they pray, will you hear us from heaven, God, and answer us, he says. If another nation comes in and takes over us and we're taken away to foreign lands, but if we look to the temple and we pray, will you hear us from heaven, forgive us our sins, and answer us? If there's a drought or if there's some kind of famine in the land, if people are inflicted with disease, whatever calamity may come, God, if we look towards this temple and we pray, will you please hear us from heaven and answer us? And later that, that day, the Lord comes and he answers Solomon. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11, under the heading of, If my people pray. And thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. And all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord, that's the temple in his own house, he successfully accomplished. And the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, that night after he had said all of this at the opening of the temple. And he said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people, when all these calamities happen to the nation, 
Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Here's Solomon giving a speech in front of the entire nation. God, will you please hear us? And God comes to Solomon and he promises, I will hear you if my people pray. Now, this is no uh, promise for the nation of America. This is a specific promise for the nation of Israel. And sometimes you might hear people use this passage and they might apply it to America. We have no promise of what's going to happen in the future of America. There is no prophecy in this scripture that we have here in our hands today that directly addresses the future of these United States that we know and love. We don't know what's going to happen to our country. But I can guarantee you what's going to happen to this nation if God's people don't pray. I can guarantee you we will see moral depravity that will make what we know now seem very insignificant. We will see godlessness in the schools reach all-time highs. We will see churches empty out, and people will wonder if there is still even Christians in America if we don't start praying seriously for God to do something in our lifetime. You know what's going to happen if God's people don't pray? Nothing's going to happen. The Bible is very clear. That God answers his people. He hears us from heaven. And the question has become today, will God's people pray? The if, unfortunately, has become very significant for us as Christians today. Do you pray? Does God hear from you? Do you take time to talk to heaven every day? Are you begging God for the salvation of souls, for the making of disciples in the church, for a great revival in our nation? Does God hear from you, my friend? Are you one of those people who would call themselves a Christian, who would say that it's not a religion, it's a relationship with God, and you would tell the world how great it is to be one of those saved by Jesus Christ, and yet you would go home and never talk with God on a regular basis with any kind of meaning or passion? That's common in the church today. It's common to come to a place like this and act like you want to worship God and act like you want to hear from his word and put on the good Christian face, but at home in your room, when no one else is watching, when it is just you in the presence of the holy God, are you on your knees? Do you pray to him? Do you have a real relationship with God, your father in Heaven, this is what our text is going to take us to today. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. That's the book of the Bible that we're going through. And you'll see that right here, Paul begins to talk about prayer. In fact, he talks about prayer in a very passionate and excited way. In fact, he basically bursts out into prayer for the Thessalonian church in the middle of the letter that he's writing to them. He just starts praying for them right in the middle of the book. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. Please follow along with me as I read our text that God has given to us this morning, something that he wants to teach our church that we desperately need to know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. It says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and make the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that your hearts blameless, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So if you were here last week, if you've been going through Thessalonians with us, here's what's going on. Paul is wondering how the Thessalonians are doing. He's been separated from them. His heart goes out to them. He's concerned that they might fall away from the faith. So he sends his right-hand man, Timothy, to go and find out how they're doing. And Timothy has just returned. 
And Timothy has given him the good news that these people, they have faith, they have love, they're real Christians. In fact, Paul, they love you and they long to see you. And Paul, it says, he is overjoyed by this good news. In fact, you can look back at at verse uh, 6, where it says that now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news, that's the word for gospel. That's the word that we usually use, which we mean to evangelize or share the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again. Usually we use that word for the good news of salvation. And it says here that that's how he felt when he heard how these people were doing. It was such good news. It was like he had heard of their salvation all over again. And he starts in verse 9 of our text saying, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? How could I thank God enough for this good news that I've heard about your faith? He says, all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Paul here is so happy to hear that these people are living as Christians, that they're standing firm in the Lord, that he is overjoyed and he says, how could I thank God enough for all the good things that he has done among you. Do you have these times? Do you have these times where you just, I love how it just says it here, you feel joy before God. Do you have those times? Man, I hope you do. I hope you have sweet times that only you and your Father in heaven know about where you're so excited about what God is doing. Here he says he's so excited about what God is doing in those other people, these Thessalonians, people that he's been separated from, that he has to go to God and he has to offer God thanksgiving. In fact, he puts it in a question mark. How could I possibly thank God enough for the good work that he's doing in you? I mean, do you tell God thank you when he's doing good things? Not only for yourself, but in the lives of other people. Are you known as a thankful kind of person? And does God hear from you? When you hear it announced at our church that 11 different people have said, I want to turn from my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ, are you feeling any joy because of that? Are you excited at all about what goes on in the lives of other people and other souls before God? This guy, he's got so much joy. That's really this whole theme of the letter. I mean, this is just a letter that Paul wrote one day when he was pumped up and stoked because he heard these people were still Christians. That's the whole summary of 1 Thessalonians. I mean, look at chapter 1, verse 2. He starts it out right here. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That's how the letter starts. I am so thankful for you that you guys are still living as Christian people. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. He puts it like this chapter 2 verse 13 we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of God which is at work which is energizing you believers man I'm so thankful for you guys I'm always thinking about you I'm always remembering how God saved you, how when I preached to you, you didn't just think it was what I was saying. No, you took it as the word of God, and it changed your life. It transformed you. I cannot think about you without being thankful to God. I hope that you have somebody in your life, maybe a family member, maybe somebody here at this church, maybe somebody you've known from growing up with or or back in the day, where when you think about that person, your first response is to thank God for saving their soul. Point number one, let's put it down like this. Don't forget to say thank you. If God is doing so many good things, if he's bringing so many people here to the church, if people are professing faith, if he's working in your home fellowship group, if he's working in somebody in your family, man, let's go feel some joy before our God and say thank you. There should be some real excitement, some real passion in our hearts as we consider. I mean, have you ever prayed something and you prayed it and you hoped that God would hear you, and you hoped that God would answer you. You prayed for so-and-so to get saved, and then all of a sudden they came to you one day, and they said, I've been saved by Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that experience? Man, I I hope you have, because there's nothing better than that, than seeing God answer your prayer and save someone. Go to Psalm 116. Turn with me in the Bible here this morning to Psalm 116. Going deep into the Old Testament. Psalm 116. This is, a, this is a, a psalm that's a thanksgiving for answered prayer. 
And he starts with the same question, or actually in verse 12, look at Psalm 116, verse 12. There's the same question that's in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9. It's like, how am I going to give God this much thanksgiving? Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? God has been so good to me. He's so blessed me. How could I possibly offer him thanksgiving to match all the good things that he has done? And it says in verse 13, well, here's all I can do. I will lift up the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord. All I can do is drink down his salvation, his goodness to me, and glorify his name. There's no way that I could thank him enough, but I'm sure going to try, he says. Now, why is he so thankful? Why is he so excited? Well, start with me in Psalm 16, verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Why is he writing this psalm? Why is he so excited? Because God listened to me. I mean, can you believe that there is a God in heaven who will hear what you have to say and who will answer you according to your prayers? Is that awesome to anybody else here? I mean, God is waiting. He is inclining his ear to hear from you, and he treats you as if you are important to him, and he answers your prayers in a way that you can tangibly see. And he says, man, once you've prayed and you've seen God answer, how could you not write a psalm about it? How could you not call on the Lord as long as you live? He says, I'm going to keep calling on him. I mean, here's how bad it was. Verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. I mean, this sounds pretty bad. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. That's the prayer right there. Save me, God. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, oh, my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully, abundantly with you. For you, God, have delivered my soul from death. You've delivered my eyes from tears. You've delivered my feet from stumbling. So I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. How could I thank him enough, the psalmist says. Look at all that he has done for me. And I don't want to be one of those people that cried out to God when I was in the pit, that cried out to God when I was in distress and anguish, and I said to God, if you get me out of this one, I'll live for you. If you get me out of this one, I'll do what's right. If you provide for my family this month, if you heal me of this disease, if you bring so-and-so back into my life, then I'll do all this stuff for you, God. I don't want to be one of those people who in my moment of need cried out to God, and after he bailed me out, I didn't go back and even say thank you to him. Because I made it about me and not about him. And giving him the glory that he deserves. Man, how could we ever stop when you start to think about it? How could we ever run out of things to say thank you for to God? I mean, the most important being the gift of his son, that he would send his one and only son to take the place of your sin down to the simple things of the fact that you got out of bed this morning and you're sitting in a chair right now. How about that? Praise the Lord. I mean, what shall we render to the Lord for all his benefits to us? No, it's a serious question. Like, how are you going to thank God seriously for all that he's done for you? I mean, we live in a nation, I think we could all agree, that is uh, very discontent. Grumbling, complaining would be words I would probably use to describe the people that I see in traffic next to me. Not thankful that they have cars and freeways that don't cost money. No, that's not the attitude that I'm seeing from our nation. I don't see an attitude of gratitude. And, and maybe when I'm talking now about have you seen God answer your prayers, I mean, many of us, we were praying for people to get saved at this church. We were praying for God to provide us a building. So when God blesses us in these ways, there's so much thankfulness. But if you haven't been asking God for anything, then you're never going to have a reason to be thankful to him. You have not because you ask not. That's what the Bible says. The reason you're complaining about things, complaining is talking to yourself. 
Complaining does nothing but put you in a bad mood. Prayer is bringing your cares before the Lord because he cares for you. If we could stop complaining and start praying, we would be so much more thankful people because God would answer our prayers and he would satisfy our hearts. Next time you find yourself grumbling about something, just realize there's something you should be giving thanks for at that time. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 because this is just how he gets started. Okay? He's pumped up. I mean, can you see this guy pacing around his room, right, pulling up his robe and stretching out his legs? I mean, Paul here, he is pumped up. These people are still saved. They're walking with the Lord, and he is thanking the Lord. And then we get a glimpse here. I don't think he's trying to show off. I don't think he's trying to set some holier-than-thou standard. I think we just get a glimpse into the reality of how this man, the Apostle Paul, lives. And he says this here in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. He's talking about this thanksgiving, this joy that he feels for these people. As we pray, he says, most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I mean, we know that while Paul was separated from these people, here's the picture that we get of him. He is praying most earnestly, night and day, that one, he can get back to these people, two, that he can encourage them to grow and become complete in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is his consuming passion. And the way this passion flows out into his life is through his prayer. Now, when you study the Greek language, all right, and I'm I'm just here to tell you what this book says, and it's going to start throwing on words that make this like, he's not just praying. It's not just like he's got a list, and the Thessalonians are on it, and once a day he kind of mentions the Thessalonians, and he checks them off the list. The words that it uses here to describe this kind of prayer are passionate language. I mean, it says, and we pray. First of all, that means to beseech, to ask, to make one's needs known, okay? So there's a, there's a pleading here. Let me give you three words that would describe the prayer of Paul here under, uh, uh, before we get to point number two. First one is pleading, okay? There's this sense of like, you have things that we need, God, and I'm asking you for them. I'm begging with, on behalf of these people, I come to you, God, and I ask for this officially. He's pleading with God to act and to do something. Then it says most earnestly, which doesn't translate very well because we don't use the word earnest very much these days, right? But the idea here, really, you could write down super abundantly. You could write that above most earnestly. Just go ahead and write it in your Bible. Super abundantly is what it means. I pray for you super abundantly, he says. Like over the top, off the charts, with all that I've got within me, I'm pouring out my prayer. I'm asking God to do things for you, and I'm doing it with abundance, okay? This is the same word that is used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 which is a verse that we really like where it says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Do we want God to do more than anything we could ask of him? Yes, we do. That's how Paul says he's praying. I'm praying super abundantly for you, he says. I'm asking God on your behalf with all that I've got within me. And then, so first of all, he's pleading. Then let's put down, he's power. He's praying with power. Let's get that for our second. I got three P's for you to describe his prayer, okay? He's pleading, and then he's got power. There's a real sense of strength in this superabundance as he's pouring out his heart for these people. And then he says he's praying most earnestly night and day. Now, at the very least, that means two times a day, but I have a feeling the more the idea behind it is all through the night, all through the day, I'm thinking of you, and I'm going with super abundance, asking God things on your behalf. So we've got this pleading with this great power, and then we have persistence. He's just about it constantly, nonstop, all the time. And I'm afraid, when I was studying this all week, I was so afraid to come to this moment in the sermon and come and talk to you because I say, look at the example of the Apostle Paul praying most earnestly night and day, pleading with this powerful superabundance and this persistence that just won't get enough. And I'm afraid that we're going to do what we're often tempted to do with the Apostle Paul and say, well, that's for the super apostle. That's not for a normal person like me. 
I can't pray like that. That's what, that's the, we've just, we have set the bar so low, my friends. We have dumbed down Christianity to the point where the bar is resting slightly above the ground. If you thank God for your food that you're about to throw down your face, well, then you're a godly person in America right now, see? No, the bar is not at this, like, constant pleading with this powerful superabundance that could only come from God, this persistence that you're just on it night and day, day and night. That's not where the bar is. Oh, it's way down here. Oh, you actually do pray? Mm, yeah. You must really know God. How long you pray for? Five minutes before you go to bed? Nice. Killing it. Killing it. Every night? Really? What about your birthday? Still? Wow. I mean, that's where we're at. I'm a pastor, okay? I'm a pastor. I love to pray. I love to talk with people about prayer. I don't like preaching about prayer because there's a large disconnect, it feels like, between me and the church, between the scriptures and God's people. Do people know the joy of prayer? Do we know what it's like to stay up late in the night and to wake up early in the morning? Not because we have to, but because we want to, because that time is the best time of our day where we get to talk with God one-on-one. It's the highlight. It's the apex. It's the closest to heaven we're going to get before we die and go there. And we long for it. We can't get enough of it. Oh, yeah, we've got this great relationship with this guy who died for us 2,000 years ago that we never talked to. It doesn't work. Your relationship is as good with God as how you talk to him. Prayer is a great like bar for you to realize where you're at with God. If there's no prayer, then there's no relationship, my friends. That's the standard, okay? I mean, go to Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at some commands of Jesus about prayer. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't use the word if you pray. Jesus says it a little bit differently. Look at the commands. Look at the assumption, the expectation that Jesus Christ makes for his disciples. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. You guys still with me? Still in this sermon about prayer? Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. <coughs> he says, <coughs> excuse me, and when you pray. Now, did he say, and if you pray there? No, he said, and when you pray. And what is the assumption therefore there? That you do pray if you're one of his people. And he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Well, what do the hypocrites do? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, I haven't seen too many people praying on the street corners here in America. I just see the sign guys who are flipping the signs all around. But what I do see is I see people pray at church sometimes. There's a lot of people who don't even want to pray at church. They don't want to pray out loud. They're very, very self-conscious about praying at church. There's a lot of that going on today. But then I see people who pray at church. We pray together at church. We've already prayed multiple times in this service here today. We'll pray again in this service. See, there's a hypocrite is the person who prays in front of other people but doesn't pray by themselves when it's just them and the Lord. That's a hypocrite. Truly, I say to you, that person, they've received their reward. But when you pray, the assumption is that you will if you're one of God's people. Here's how you should do it. Go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, I go into my room, and it's just me and God, and I talk to him. Nobody else even needs to know about it. It's something that I do between me and the Lord. Then it goes on. There's more. Verse 7, and when you pray, notice the assumption here, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words, people who repeat the same prayers over and over. Or I don't know if you've ever noticed that sometimes when people pray, the inflection on their voice changes a little bit, right? It's like normally they just talk like a normal person, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh God, our Father, we come before you. Like their spiritual voice comes out, right? All of a sudden people are praying for things like, oh Lord, grant us thy traveling mercies as we go on the road. What are you, what are you praying about? You want a safe trip? Traveling mercies? What is this stuff, you know? Bless this food to our bodies. God's doing some kind of magic on the food. I mean, what are we, what are we talking about, right? 
We just start throwing out these phrases that sound spiritual. We've heard other people say them. So we pass them on and we, we give this aura like we really know what we're talking about before God. And it says, don't think that's going to impress God. It's not going to impress God. No, look at verse 8. Do not be like them. Don't be caught up in that. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. <laughs> you're not going to impress him with your many words. He already knows what you're going to say. See? When you pray, when does that happen for you? If you would call yourself a Christian here this morning, when do you pray? Do you have a time set aside? Do you have a place? Do you have a secret place like it's talking about where you go, where no one will bother you, where you can be alone, where the distractions of the digital age will not constantly to devour your attention, but you can focus your heart and mind and soul on God for an extended period of time with no interruptions. When do you go to your room and shut the door and pray to your father in the secret place? Point number two, let's put it down like this. You need to set aside a time and place to pray. You need to set aside a time and place to pray. You should have a regular time and a regular place. It should be very hard. The forces of hell should have to arise against you and, and really come after you to keep you from praying one day between you and your heavenly father. This is the expectation. This is where Jesus sets the bar. When you pray, you're going to go into your room. And let's just throw out some numbers about the amount of time. Okay, let's just throw out some numbers about the uh, amount of time. I say things like, let's go pray for 10 minutes, and people look at me like, that sounds about right. Yeah, 10 minutes. Well, okay, I don't, I'm going to have to make a list. I'm going to have to prepare for that, right? Okay. The idea to Christians in any other generation besides our own that we would be praying to our Father for less than an hour a day would make us the most spiritual, lightweight generation in the history of Christianity, okay? We are having a very low standard compared to what our Christians throughout history before us would have done. At least they would have thought an hour would be good. You can hear great quotes like, I'm so busy, uh, quotes from guys like Martin Luther, if I don't pray for two hours, the devil wins the day. And then the idea is like, well, tomorrow's going to be a really busy day, so I'm going to have to wake up even earlier so I can pray for three hours. Otherwise, I won't make it through tomorrow. These are the men who did great things for the Lord. These are the people who passed down Christianity to us. And now that just sounds crazy. Pray for an hour? Are you serious? What is this, like AP Christianity? What are we going for? Are we going to get some kind of bonus in heaven? No, it's when you pray. You go and you talk to your father, and he's inclining his ear. The God of heaven is waiting for you to come and beseech him. He cares about your cares, and he wants to answer you, and you're too busy for God. That's the epitome of messed up, my friends. People go into their closet a lot these days. They used to call it the prayer closet. That was the idea. Go into your prayer closet, and you spend some time in there. You used to know a Christian by the, by the wounds, by the, by the calluses on their knees because they were always down on their knees before the Lord. We've got a lot of people going into their closet here in Orange County. It's all about the external appearance in our closets these days. Nobody's dressing the inward person of the soul, just making themselves look good for other people. That's what we do in our closets these days. Not taking our soul before the Lord. This is a serious problem, and we preach on it, and everybody's like, yeah, I should do something about it, but who's really going to do something about it? Who's going to go home today and change your schedule so you have time, the best time of your day, to pray? Who's going to go home today and block out a place where you will not be distracted, where you can just get in your heart before the Lord and talk to him uninterrupted. And if you already do these things, let me encourage you, my friend, go for more than you've ever done before. Pray bigger than you ever have before. Pray most earnestly, night and day. That's the example that is set before us. That's the example we should all be striving for. When I was growing up, I had a neighbor, and he had a bunch of cars in his garage, like really nice, fancy cars. And I never once 
saw my neighbor drive one of those cars. The only thing I ever saw him do, there were two cars. One was like gold and one was black. And I didn't know anything about cars, but I knew these were cool cars, right? And he would, all he would do, he would go into his garage. It was his secret place. It was his place of worship. And he would pull those cars out and he would wash them. And that always confused me because washing the car was like a chore. Why would anybody want to do that? And I never even saw him drive the car. It didn't even look dirty to me. Like, what was going on? And he's just there day after day after day, washing his car. And I thought of that when I read Matthew 6, verse 19. Look what it says. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure, my friend? Is it with Jesus Christ in heaven? Because if you long to be with Jesus Christ in heaven, if that's where your heart is, then the only way you can get to heaven here on earth is when you pray. When you pray, you go boldly into the throne room of grace. You get to be there in God's holy presence because Jesus Christ is your high priest and he has shed his blood for your sins and he will now stand before you. He will claim you as one of his own and he will intercede between the holy God and you a sinner. Jesus Christ will now intercede and allow you to come into the presence of the holy God of heaven and talk to him anytime that you want. That's what prayer is. And it's hard for me to imagine that my heart is so in that place with God and Jesus. And I can't even take a few minutes a day to go there in prayer. But I got so many other things going on that are always deteriorating. I can't even keep a car safe in my garage. I can't even keep my clothes safe in my closet because this world is passing away. And the eternal things, the things that really matter, I'm missing out on day after day. I don't pray about them. And here's two reasons why I think we don't pray, okay? Let me give you two reasons here under point number two. Two reasons we are not passionate about prayer. Uh, uh, Go back to 1 Thessalonians 3, and we'll kind of see how Paul does the opposite, okay? Uh, Two reasons we are not passionate about prayer, okay? The first reason is we pray for the physical over the spiritual, Let's get that down for number one. When when we share prayer requests, it's oftentimes, as Christian people, we pray for physical needs rather than spiritual needs, okay? And I don't know if you've ever been to a, a group of Christians before sharing prayer requests, but sometimes it's like watching a train wreck. Have you ever experienced this before, right? It's like, all right, everybody, let's share our prayer requests. What do you want to pray for? What do you want to pray for? I was at a Christian school one time, a high school, and they said, hey, who's, gonna, who's got prayer requests? Throw out your prayer requests, everybody. And people start praying. You know, somebody's dog over here died. And somebody over here was praying for their test that they would have later that day in school. And then somebody in the back raised their hand. And it was like, all right, what do you want to pray for? And he said, my aunt has cancer, you guys. And there was like a hush that went around the room like, whoa, big one. Right? And I was like, okay, I hear what you're saying, man. And I went to this guy afterwards, and I said, hey, man, that sounds pretty serious about your aunt. And the guy says to me something I've never forgot. He's like, oh, I've never met her. I just thought it would be a good request today. See? That's what we think. We think, hey, somebody needs something, so let's pray that they'll get what they need, what they need, and we don't realize that everybody who's sick, if they get better now, what's going to happen to them later, my friends? It's only a matter of time for every single person in this room until your body stops working and your heart starts beating. And the only thing that's going to matter about your life or my life or anybody's life is where is your soul at with God, see? Now, if we got somebody who's got cancer, let's go pray that God will heal them. I'm all for that. But when I'm praying for God to heal them, what am I going to pray for that person? That their soul is ready to meet the Lord. And that they will have great joy in meeting the Lord. And that if this is their time to meet the Lord, then I don't want to keep them down here. If they're going to be enjoying glory up there, see. That's the kind of way I should be praying. 
I, I should see past people's physical needs to the state of their soul. And if you're just praying for people to get a good grade on their test or their dog to get better or their, or their leg to, to not be as painful as it usually is, that's not what we were made to pray for. We were made to pray that God would take somebody who's dead in their soul and make them alive, see? Somebody who's lost in the darkness, groping for all of this sin to satisfy themselves and that they would be shown the glorious light of Jesus Christ and find real soul satisfaction and joy and happiness like they've never known. And we're praying that they'll get a good grade on their test. Who cares? I mean, really, in the long run, that test you have on Thursday, who cares, you see? And we're like, no, no, that's, that's what's urgent. And the urgent wins the day over the important. See? The souls of people all around you, that's what we're supposed to be praying for. I'm not dissing praying for physical things, but I'm trying to put the importance on spiritual things as we should think of it. Another reason we are not excited about prayer, the second one here, is we pray for ourselves over others. We pray for ourselves over others. And I, this is how naturally... When I come to pray to God, I feel tired. I don't know about you guys if you ever feel tired. I might feel a little stressed out about everything that's going on. I might feel a little busy, a little frazzled when I come to God in prayer. And if I don't think about it, if I don't direct my mind with the word, if I just kind of roll into prayer, I'm going to start praying for me, myself, and I. That's going to be the trinity of my prayer time. And I'm going to be saying, oh, Lord, I got this coming up, and I can barely make it through this. And, oh, Lord, I need your help with that. And I just paid the bills, Lord, and there's not that much left. And, oh, Lord, how are we going to make it through today? That's not, that doesn't sound very fun way to pray. It doesn't sound very dynamic and exciting. If, you're, if you just come to God and you pray for yourself, you're going to be so, you're not that exciting. I mean, I hate to break it to you, all right? But you're not the center of the universe. And if you come to God asking like your needs are the most important thing that you have to talk to God about, you've already revealed your cards right there. You're missing the point of prayer. This is your time in heaven. This is your time to behold his glory and to hallow his name, to lift it high, to see him for who he is. And you're going to spend that time just dumping your little requests before the holy God of the universe? We should be asking him to revive nations. We should be asking him to save thousands. We should be asking him to flip your neighborhood upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to ask him to get us to lunchtime? We ask for things that are way too small. They are not almost even worthy. Now, I, he cares about the smallest of details, but when we come and bring these things before him like they're the most important, we show that we don't really understand the purpose of prayer. We, a lot of times, we need to flip our prayer list upside down, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a special sermon next week where we're going to go through the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us how to pray. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So whose requests come first? God's requests or your requests? See, there's a place for you. There's a place for physical realities, but it's subordinate to the overwhelming glory of God that we're asking to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. Let your glory ring out in America once again, God. That's how we should be praying. Now, that's something worth seeing a great revival in America, seeing this church so we can't even fit people in this room anymore, seeing your neighbor, your coworker, that family member you've loved for decades, seeing them get saved, that's a reason worth getting up early in the morning, see? A lot better than you, a lot better than what you need to make it through that day. There's something more in store from God for his people, and we have not because we ask not. Any church in history that has committed every person in that church to praying for God to save people and see great revival, guess what happens at every single one of those churches? God does great things. There has never been a group of God's people that have come together and seriously started to beseech him, to pray earnestly before him day and night that he has not showed up to answer his people's prayer. He is a loving heavenly father and he wants us to give good gifts to you. And I just want to encourage you, stop asking for little toys. 
and start asking for God to do great things, great things in your life and even more importantly, in the lives of others. Look at this prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and you'll see it's not about Paul and it's not about physical things. He's praying that they would see them face to face so they could supply what is lacking in your faith and then he bursts into prayer. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Okay, so he, he does kind of pray about a physical thing. He wants to come to them. Why? Because the Lord make you increase and abound. More of this super powerful language. He doesn't just pray that they'll love one another. He prays that they will increase and abound in love for one another. And even for all, even people outside of the church, as we do for you. Because here's what the ultimate goal is. I want you to be established. I want to see you standing. I want your hearts to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's talking about the judgment day. He's talking about the end of all things. I'm praying for you, and here's my driving passion for you, standing there right before God on the day of judgment. And God looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. See? That's what I'm praying for you. And until then, may your love just overflow and may your love just grow like crazy. I mean, the language that he uses here, it's just obsessive, passionate language. And I don't just want you guys to like each other a little bit. I want you to love one another. I want it to just burst out of this room so that even people outside of here are getting loved and sucked into this place. He's praying big. He's praying for them on judgment day. He's praying right now that their love would just take over their entire city. That's what he's praying for. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Here's another example. I mean, a lot of the letters of Paul start with him being thankful for people because he's been praying for people. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Look at this with me. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Just so you can see, this is how he was living his life all of the time. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I remember how we're partnering in the gospel, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's my confidence that I keep praying that you're going to stand firm to the end of your life and be there before God. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may grow like crazy, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I mean, do you see what he's saying here? It's right for me to pray about you this way because I hold you in my heart, he says. I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you. I mean, are you getting the language here? Does Paul care about these people? Yeah, he does. And he's going to pray for them. And then he drops like in the middle in all the excitement about their love, super abounding and all of this. He says, and I pray for you. And do you notice what he said there? In my imprisonment for the defense of the gospel. Kind of just muttered that in there. Hello? The guy's in jail writing this letter. You wouldn't know that's a guy in jail. He's not leading with the physical request. He's not leading with himself. He's not saying, hey, guys, here I am from jail. Thanks for writing that card. It's brutal here. Uh, guys, are you praying for me? Are you praying that I'll get out because it hasn't happened yet? Is anybody out there praying for me? You don't get that tone at all. I mean, I, I'm sad to confess, some days that's the way I go before the Lord. Oh, Lord, I need your help. Bail me out, please. None of that here. Oh, man, God, I'm so thankful for these people, and I'm so confident for what you're going to do in them because I hold them in my heart, because I long for them with the affection of Jesus Christ himself, the same way that Jesus loved them by dying on the cross for their sins. That's how I love them. Oh, I, oh I'm in jail? Oh, I need to get out of here? Oh, I didn't even think about that because I was too busy praying most earnestly night and day for you. You would expect that when Timothy comes back, Paul's prayers would be answered because now his right-hand man, Timothy, is back, and now he's kind of got his team back together, and his distress and anguish of being alone in Athens is over. He never once mentions that. All he could talk about is how thankful he is for what God is doing in other people. 
There's so many better things to pray for than you and what's going on in your day. There's a place for that, but there's more important things. And when you start praying for those more important things, that's when you'll find yourself having a passion to pray. And here's the thing that I'm here to tell you. When you pray, God will answer you. And we believe in the sovereignty of God here at this church. We believe that God is in control of all things, that he has a plan, that he is working according to his good pleasure, that he's God and he can do whatever he wants. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Do we agree with that? But here's how God has sovereignly chosen to work, that he wants to do what he does by answering the prayers of his people. That's how he's decided to do it. Now, we could sit here and scratch our heads and try to figure it out, or we could get down on our knees and start praying. That's your option before you. But I want you to know that when Paul prays this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, that prayer is 100% answered. Okay? He prays that he will go and see them. You can write down Acts 20, verses 1 and 2, where it makes it clear that Paul makes his way back to Greece and even through the city of Thessalonica, where he picks up some guys who start to become a part of his missionary team. That's Acts 21 to 2. Does Paul end up getting back to Thessalonica? Is that prayer answered? Check. Then he prays that their love would just do this crazy increasing and abounding and that they would so love each other that it would spill out of the room to other people all around them. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. That's the prayer of 1 Thessalonians. Here's another letter. And look what he says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks. Here he is, still thankful. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing, how is it growing? Abundantly. And the love of every one of you for another, guess what it's doing? Increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Guess what God does? God answers prayers. That's what he does. Paul in 1 Thessalonians is praying that their love would increase. It should come to no surprise that in 2 Thessalonians, he's thanking God because their love has increased. When you pray, here's, here's a, I think probably the number one reason people don't pray, they don't think God's going to answer. Point number three, let's get it down like this. Expect God to answer. In fact, it even talks in the scripture in Philippians chapter 4, 6, and 7 about praying with thanksgiving from the very beginning because we're so confident that God is going to answer us that we already thank him for the answers even as we offer the prayers. Praying with a faith, with a belief that, hey, when I take the promises of God, does God want to save people right now in America? Well, I start praying for him to save people. Do I have hope that he's going to answer that prayer? When I pray for my church, that God will build the church, that Jesus is the rock, and Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell can't prevail against it. When I pray about that, do I know that God is going to answer? See, there's certain things that we can pray for. The name of Jesus to be lifted high, the glory of God to be known by all people. Is that God's will? We can pray for that, and we can know that God is going to answer. Look at Matthew 21. Look at Matthew 21. Let me just try to encourage you with, with a parable about a, a fig tree. I don't know if anybody's ever uh, had figs growing in their backyard before. Anybody ever had figs growing? Not exactly the most uh, popular uh, thing you can grow. You know what I mean? Figs. Doesn't exactly inspire uh, anything really right now. Right? I mean, figgy puddings. The only thing I got going for me is that even made out of figs. I don't even know what it is. So here we got a story about Jesus cursing a fig tree. Maybe he just doesn't like figs. I don't know. Let's, let's read Matthew 21, verse 18. Matthew 21, verse 18. Try to get what Jesus is teaching the disciples here. See if we can comprehend this. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, <coughs> excuse me, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. A fig tree with no figs. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. Whoa. Jesus, that's so harsh. You know what I mean? Just upset at the fig tree. Now, there's, there's more going on that we don't have time to get into, but the fig tree was a common analogy in the Old Testament for the nation of 
Israel. And so when Jesus goes to a fig tree and there's no figs, that is a statement about the nation of Israel that it is not praying to God. It is not humbling itself. It is not seeking God's face and turning from its wicked ways and and looking towards the temple and hoping that God is going to hear them from heaven. No, they're doing their own thing these days. And that's what this is about. This is an example of judgment against the nation of Israel. And it says the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, they wondered, they were in awe, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have what, my friends? Now, do you believe that? Do you have the faith that it says there? I don't know if you've ever driven to Santa Barbara before, but my grandpa, he lives in Santa Barbara, and so I drive up there, and there's this stretch of the 101 where you literally have, like, hills, mountains on one side and the Pacific gorgeous blue ocean on the other side. Anybody ever been there? And I cannot drive through that stretch of uh, freeway without thinking, I'll say to this side, get into that side, right? Hey, mountains, go into the seas, right? I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's saying that we got to pray for big things that seem impossible, seem like nothing could be moved, seem like how could that possibly happen here in the real world in the 21st century in America in 2015? A great revival in our land right now? I don't know. A church that just kind of starts taking over and you can't even fit people in the doors of the church. A church that's not selling out, but they're really preaching the Bible and people are really turning from their sin and getting saved. I don't know if stuff like that still happens these days. See, Seems like a big old mountain to move for America to get back in the right track. Seems like a big old mountain to move for people to start centering their life on God and prayer and church and souls. How is that going to happen in America? We can't even go 10 minutes or a sermon without looking at our iPhone. How are we going to have this great revival, another awakening in our land? See, that's the kind of stuff that if people in this room will get down on their knees We'll spend time in a secret place with God and we will ask him and we will beseech him and we will pray with passion, earnestly, night and day. God wants you to know, you get down on your knees, you pray with faith and you see if he doesn't answer you. You see if he doesn't exceed your expectations. You put God to the test, my friend. And you see if he doesn't do more than anything that you could think to ask him. The day of small things needs to be done, and it's time for us to act like we've got a big God who hears us and who actually wants to answer our prayers. You know, there's a book I really want to recommend to you. It's by this guy named R.A. Torrey. It's called The Power of Prayer. This guy named R.A. Torrey, he founded the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, otherwise known as Biola University. And we have some Biolans here among us, right? R.A. Torrey, he was this guy named uh, Dwight L. Moody's right-hand man, okay? He helped found the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and then he came out here to Los Angeles and started the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. So two of, like, the still strongest Christian schools going. I mean, these were started a long time ago, and they're still going today, and they were started by this guy, R.A. Torrey, and he writes this book about prayer. And it's in our book nook. You could get it right after, right after the service. And he says things in this book that, quite honestly, are, are hard to believe. He tells personal stories of how people pray and how things would happen. He'll tell a story, if you read this book, about his friend Dwight L. Moody. And there was a great uh, Chicago fire, and I don't know if you know the history of Dwight L. Moody, but he cared for so many people in that city, and he did a great work of the Lord in Chicago. And he went on a trip over to Europe and to England and to London, and he wanted to go hear some of the great preachers that were preaching in in London in those days. And he was just on vacation. And while he was on vacation, Dwight L. Moody was asked to preach in this church, and he really didn't want to do it, but he couldn't really get out of it, is what the story says. And here's a famous preacher who's kind of on vacation, and I guess he's a little preached out, and so he's he's forced to preach at this church, and he preaches, and he just says it was terrible. 
I was like I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. There was, I struggled. There was no power. There was, there was nothing in it. And yet the guy, the pastor, was so persistent, and he said, Dwight L. Moody, no, you got to come back and preach the sermon again tonight. We have a Sunday night service, and we need you to preach it. And Dwight L. Moody is trying every possible way to get out of preaching. He's like, dude, did you just hear that? Let me out of this, right? And he shows up that night, and he says he preaches. He doesn't want to do it. He's not feeling it. And something happens in the middle of the sermon. And he says, people, he could tell, were hanging on his every word. And he, he preaches, and he gets this sense that these people need the gospel. And he starts bringing the gospel, and he calls people to repent of their sin and put their faith. And he gives, and he says, who would like to come and become a Christian today? And in this church, 500 people stand up. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. You guys might, must not understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus Christ. Why don't we all sit down and try this again? Let me make sure you guys know what I'm talking about. And he says, now, if you really want to give your life to Jesus Christ and leave everything behind and follow him, stand up. And the same amount of people stand up. And he says, I don't think you guys are really understanding what I'm saying. So he goes over it again one more time with them. And he says, if you're really serious about it, why don't you come see me and the pastor in the back? And they're all cramming into the back of the church to try to, try to come see him. And he's like, this is just silly. Something weird is happening here. So you guys, why don't you come back tomorrow night if you're really serious, then we'll talk to you. Okay? And they all come back. In fact, more people come back by the next night. And he, like, how did that happen? Didn't even want to preach, wasn't feeling it, and like almost it seems like the whole church gets saved. Well, it turns out that after the Sunday morning service, this sister went to her bedridden sister, and she came home from church, and she's like, you will not believe who preached at our church today. And she says, who? Dwight L. Moody from America preached in our church today. And the sister's like, I've been praying for that. I've been asking God to bring Dwight Moody to our church. I wish I had known he was here. I would have stayed up all night praying. Quick, close the door. I need to pray for this evening's service. One woman who can't get out of bed, who does great things for God. Man, if we could have some women like that at this church. If we could have some men who are known as prayer warriors here at this church. If we could have a church of people who really prayed to God, imagine what he could do. R.A. Torrey, when Dwight L. Mooney stopped being the pastor there at Moody Bible Chapel, R.A. Torrey was asked to take his place. And on his first sermon with his new church, he said, I'm only going to do this under one condition, that you people have to pray for me. I need every single person here. I need your Saturday nights. I need your Sunday mornings. And I need you every single week to go to God and ask him to do something at our church. Because honestly, I can't do it. This is what R.A. Torrey will tell you. And they were in this great place, this Moody Bible Chapel. And they were just kind of, it had a great balcony. It could hold like 2,200 people. And they were just using a small part of it when he started preaching. And it wasn't long till they had to open up the balcony. It wasn't long till they had standing room only. It wasn't long till 2,700 people were packed into their church every Sunday to hear R.A. Torrey preach. And he says people were getting saved every day of the week. And he started going around the world and he started preaching in Australia and New Zealand. And supposedly, he'll tell you in the book, that on this tour of Australia and New Zealand preaching, over 100,000 people professed faith in Jesus Christ. And he said he was talking to another pastor and he's like, R.A. Torrey, to be honest with you, I'm shocked because I've heard you preach and I didn't really think you had it in you. <laughs> I, I've heard you, man. I mean, I, I, it's amazing. This is, the response is happening. But then I went to your church while you were on that trip. And I saw your people. And I saw how they prayed for you. See, then I understood. Is that what we want to do here? We can put on our face. We can go to our closet and put on our clothes. And we can look good for each other. And we can pray. Or we can go to our closet and we can get down on our knees. And we can see God do things that someday they'll write books about. And they'll tell other people, what do you want to do? Do you want to go home and pray? Or do you want to just keep doing what you're doing? Let me pray for you right now. God, I thank you for this word from Paul, this example that he sets. God, I thank you for his bar that he raises very high, that he would beg, that he would plead, that he would beseech with you 
most earnestly, with this great power, with this superabundance, night and day, persistently, that he would ask for things that really matter, for the salvation of souls, for the love of one, or, one another to increase, and even to spread outside of this room. God, we want to see a revival in America. We want to see this church get built up. We want to see our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family members that maybe we have even honestly given up on. We want to see them get saved. So God, make us people who pray. Make us people who pray with faith that you're going to take a mountain and you're going to toss it into a sea, that you're going to take a nation that's turned its back on you and turn it back around, that you're going to take a church that's grown complacent where people don't even pray, and you're going to light the fire once again, God. Make us a church that prays. Get us on our knees. Get us one-on-one with you. Let us go into the secret place, and let us come to the throne room of heaven and see Jesus Christ, our high priest, standing there, interceding for us. And let us come to you in this time of need and find grace and strength. And let us see your glory in these dark days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.